Well, thank you for tuning into this verse-by-verse Bible study. I'm your host, Randy Duncan, and we are making our way through the book of Genesis. And in this episode, we're covering chapter 25, which sees the death of Abraham. And so the focus now will turn to his son, Isaac, and to his twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Now, as a reminder, in the last episode, we completed chapter 24, and in that, we finished the story of how Isaac and Rebekah were brought together as husband and wife, which sets the scene for them to sort of be handed the torch, passed on from Abraham and Sarah. And so we begin chapter 25 with verses 1 through 6, which read, Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah, and she bore him, and then it goes on to list some sons, and then some grandsons. I'm not going to go through that list. We're just going to skip on down to verse 5, which reads, And Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. And so we start out with this, oh, by the way, statement that Abraham took another wife. Now, There are differing opinions on exactly what this means and when this happened. Some insist that this verb took is better translated actually as had taken, which would mean that this happened sometime in the past. In other words, it's not chronological. Others believe that this was after Sarah died. However, one problem with that interpretation is simply Abraham's age at that time. Abraham had long ago judged his body too old to have children, which is why Isaac's birth had to be supernatural. I mean, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born, and he was now, he's 40 years older. And so it seems unlikely that he would have fathered six more sons at age 140. But after the other sons are listed, it tells us that Abraham gave them all gifts, and then he sent them away. Isaac would be the sole heir of everything Abraham owned, and more importantly, to the covenant promises from God. Verses 7 through 11 continue. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Bir Laharoi. So Abraham lives to be 175, which means Isaac is now 75 years old when Abraham dies. Abraham lived in the land for 100 years. Remember that God had promised Abraham that he would live to a ripe old age and that he would go to his fathers in peace. And here, it's affirmed that Abraham does indeed die at a ripe old age and content and happy, and he's able to die in peace, seeing many grandchildren. Notice also that both Isaac and Ishmael bury Abraham. Even though they've been separated for many years, they still share the same father. And Ishmael still has a future in this story. Remember, God promised Abraham that he would also bless Ishmael. It's just that Ishmael would not be the son who would inherit the covenant promises of God. Now, Abraham is buried in the same cave as Sarah, the same one he purchased for her burial. And we discussed this in an earlier episode, how that cave at Machpelah is to this day a venerated site to the Jews. In fact, it's considered by many as the second holiest site in Judaism after the Temple Mount. 
Interestingly, this site is also holy to Muslims, since Abraham is the father of Ishmael. And today, there's actually a mosque that's built over the site, and Muslims refer to this site as the Sanctuary of Abraham. Verses 12-18 through read, These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. And again, not going to go through this list. So we come down to verse 16, which picks up by saying, These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. So these verses begin by listing Ishmael's sons, 12 of them. And so now you know why I didn't read them. But Ishmael, as a son of Abraham, enjoys the physical blessings of family just as God promised that he would. In fact, his 12 sons are actually called 12 princes or chieftains. Remember back in chapter 17, verse 12, what did God tell Abraham concerning Ishmael? God said, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. And he shall father, get this, twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. So again, as always, God does exactly what he says he's going to do. God keeps his promises. And it tells us here that Ishmael lives to be 137 years of age. The mention of the lifespan of a non-Israelite is actually quite remarkable and, and suggests the importance of this descendant of Abraham. And the last part of verse 18 tells us that Ishmael settled over against all of his kinsmen. Yet again, this is exactly what God told Hagar was going to happen back in chapter 16, verse 12. In that verse, God tells Hagar, He shall be a wild donkey of a man his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So once again, what happened was exactly what God said would happen. Ishmael lived in hostility and in conflict with those around him. And with that, we move now in this chapter to the beginning of the story of Isaac's twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Verses 19-23 through 23 read, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was forty years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padamaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So after a quick recap that Isaac is Abraham's son, and that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, we learn that Rebekah was unable to give birth. Now this is the same situation we saw with Abraham and Sarah, with Sarah unable to have children. But, just like with Abraham and Sarah, Isaac prays to God, and God responds. This is also a reminder that God is directly involved in the promised line. 
And we don't know it now, but we will see later and pick up on the fact that Isaac actually prays for 20 years before Rebekah gives birth. 20 years. However, in the meantime, Isaac and Rebekah do not resort to using a concubine like Abraham and Sarah did. They maintain their faith in God's word and in the power of prayer. By holding off on answering Isaac's prayer for 20 years, maybe God's teaching this new generation that they must also learn the lesson of faith to understand that what is happening with God's promised line is not natural, but it's supernatural. Now, the scripture tells us that the children struggled together within her. Rebecca experiences an unusually difficult pregnancy. The report of a difficult pregnancy is actually unique in scripture, but also the Hebrew here uses an unusual verb, wa'itrusetsu, which literally means they crushed, they thrust one another, and it foreshadows their hostility towards one another. So this was, again, an unusually difficult pregnancy, so much so that Rebecca is actually worried. She realized that this wasn't normal, and so she goes to God and asks, you know, why is this happening to me? Why did I yearn and pray to become pregnant if this is what was going to happen to me? Why do I go on living? In the Hebrew, that's the sense of what she's actually asking God. Now, it may not be about a pregnancy, but how many times do we have the same question about events and situations in our lives? God, why is this happening to me? Now, sometimes we may get an answer, but sometimes not. And when we don't get an answer, we need to learn to live with some unanswered questions and to accept that God's wisdom and God's sovereignty stands behind all things. I mean, it's okay to have questions, to be emotional, even angry. It's okay to ask God why. I mean, there are plenty of examples of people in the Bible who did just that. But to demand answers from God, well, that's a different story. See Job chapters 38 and 39 to see how well that worked out for Job. But God actually responds to Rebekah here. God informs her that she is carrying twins, that each of them will be a, a progenitor of people, that the movements and the struggles within her womb result from sibling rivalry, and that one would be stronger than the other, but that the older would actually serve the younger. And there's an important point here. The older shall serve the younger. The physical firstborn is not going to be the inheritor of the covenant promises. The younger will inherit those promises. Now, this reminds us of the situation actually with Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was the firstborn physically, but it would be the younger, Isaac, who would inherit the covenant promises. Same thing here. The physical firstborn of Isaac, Esau, would not inherit the promises, but the spiritual firstborn, Jacob, would. Esau is parallel to Ishmael, and Jacob sort of parallel to Isaac. And there are other examples of this throughout the Bible. And we don't have to look any further than Cain and Abel. We can look at David, King David, rather than any of his older brothers, or Joseph, rather than any of his older brothers. And this is an example of the reality of the physical and the spiritual. Yes, you may be physically the first, but spiritually, you're not fit. There's a physical reality, and there's a spiritual reality. And unfortunately, in our world today, most people are just caught up in and completely absorbed by only the physical reality. So much so 
that they give almost no thought to the reality of the spiritual. I mean, think about it. How much of each day do you spend on the physical versus the spiritual? And I'm not speaking of the physical in terms of exercise necessarily or going to the gym or anything. I'm talking about simply going through your typical day, which is made up of going to work, running errands, you're spending your energy on you know, planning your weekends, watching TV, scrolling through social media, arguing about politics, and the list goes on. Now, I'm not suggesting in any way that the physical is not important. Of course it is. I mean, that's how we were made. It's how we were designed to interact in the world and with others. But if you're neglecting the spiritual side of life, then you're missing out on the fullness of what it means to be a human being, to fully appreciate and enjoy the way God has created us in his image. Well, here, God demonstrates to us once again that there is indeed a physical reality, but there is also a spiritual reality, and the spiritual reality is of more consequence. Verses 24 through 28 read, And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, with his hand holding Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them, and when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So the twins, Esau and Jacob, are born. The firstborn was Esau, and it tells us that he was red, and this is not likely referring to his hair color or anything, but referring more to a sort of ruddy complexion. I mean, this sort of red might be similar to maybe when a normally pale person has been outside in the cold and their cheeks get flushed. And it also tells us that Esau was hairy. And this detail will come into play later on in the narrative. But Jacob was the secondborn. And it tells us that he came out holding on to Esau's heel. Sort of symbolic of Jacob trying to prevent Esau from being the firstborn. The name Jacob actually is an abbreviation of a longer word that means may God protect. And so it sort of recognizes Jacob's divine election. But we'll see that Jacob in some ways will tarnish this good name. And so it's appropriate that his name is also a pun for another word in Hebrew, Akeb. That means to see someone by the hill, to go behind someone, to betray. And it's actually the same word that's used by God in Genesis 3.15, where God tells Satan, in referencing the Messiah, that this future descendant would crush him, but that Satan would do what? bruise his heel. It's the same word that puns here, and so the reference to betrayal is fitting. These verses also tell us a little about each of the boys after they grew up. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. The biblical ideal of a leader is symbolized by a shepherd, which is what Jacob was. On the other hand, mighty hunters, such as Esau, and Nimrod specifically, they are actually depicted negatively in Scripture. In fact, in a couple of chapters, we'll see that Esau is described as someone who lived by the sword. And remember, Jesus told us in Matthew 26 that all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then we come to that short but very interesting verse, verse 28, which tells us Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, 
but Rebecca loved Jacob. Ruh-roh, Raggy. First of all, when it says loved here, that word translated here as love actually means to choose or to have a preference for. Because no doubt Isaac and Rebecca loved both of their boys, but they had their favorites. And it tells us why Isaac preferred Esau, because he loved eating the game that Esau brought home. But no reason is specifically given why Rebecca preferred Jacob. So we sort of naturally assume it's because God has already told her that Esau would serve Jacob. Jacob was God's chosen. You know, it's interesting. Adam failed in eating. Noah failed in drinking. And now Isaac fails in tasting of the game that Esau brought. Isaac prefers the natural senses. Rebecca prefers the divine choice and those lasting qualities. So because of all of this, and for different reasons, parental favoritism comes into play and it ends up making matters worse. The last five verses of this chapter, starting in verse 29, read, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Then Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And so here we see that the struggle that began in the womb continues into adulthood. Esau comes in from the field, exhausted, and he asks Jacob for some of the red stew he was cooking. Now the Hebrew actually reads some of this red stuff. So Esau comes in and actually asks Jacob for some of that red stuff. By the way, the stew Jacob was cooking was red, which is why then Esau was called Edom, because Edom is actually derived from a Hebrew verb, Adom, meaning to be red. And Edom is where Esau's descendants settled. Which again is also ironic because remember, when he was born, Esau was actually described as being red all over. Now to be fair to Esau, it wasn't that he was just tired from a long day hunting in the fields. The real meaning is that he was actually famished. He was about to faint and he was actually in dire need of food and drink. That is the proper Hebrew understanding of what he is saying. Nevertheless, Jacob sees an opportunity And so he exploits his brother's misery and his weakness. So he tells him, sure, I'll give you some stew. Just sell me your birthright first. And again, Jacob is taking advantage of the opportunity, which is actually quite a contrast to the way his grandfather Abraham treated guests and servants and even strangers. So to make sure we're clear, when Jacob says birthright, what exactly is he talking about? The word actually refers to the rights of the firstborn. The firstborn holds a position of honor within the family. You were responsible to be the family protector, the leader of the family. And the father's inheritance was divided amongst the number of sons, and the firstborn actually received two portions. So, for example, if there were eight sons, the firstborn would receive two portions, and the remaining seven sons would split the remaining six portions. Now, some people think that if there were only two sons, then the firstborn would inherit everything. Others, however, teach that, no, no, the inheritance would have been divided into three parts, and the firstborn would have received two-thirds, which is twice as much as the younger son. 
But more importantly in this instance, the one who possesses the birthright also inherits Abraham's covenant promises. So how does Esau respond to Jacob's demand? He says, look, I'm about to die. What good's a birthright to me? Esau lacks faith and he lives in the moment. He is short-sighted and so right now his birthright means nothing to him. But Jacob doesn't trust him and so he makes him swear, which makes this deal irrevocable. It makes it irreversible. Because in the ancient world, an oath was a serious and it was a sacred act. But at the center of all of this is the two different worldviews of Jacob and Esau. Esau lives for the here and now, the immediate, that instant satisfaction, sort of like most of the world does today. But Jacob took a, a longer view approach and the deferred prosperity perspective. So Jacob gives him the stew. Esau ate and drank and he got up and he left. And the style of the verbs in the Hebrew represent Esau's behavior as just being crude as he just devours the meal, then he gets up and he walks out. And there's no mention of him even giving his birthright a second thought. And this chapter ends simply by stating that Esau despised his birthright. And by despised, what is meant here is that Esau treated his birthright with irreverence. He rejected it. He devalued it. Now I think one of the main features of this entire scene is to depict the differences in Jacob and Esau. Esau was a sort of a crass man characterized by the desire for the immediate, sensual gratification. I mean, he speaks coarsely, he speaks roughly, he's rude, and he has contempt for his family's inheritance. I mean, no wonder God chose Jacob, even though he was younger. God's not going to provide his covenant promises to someone who acts like a barbarian. And the bottom line is that Esau wasn't really interested in spiritual things. And as I mentioned earlier, that's something that every person has to figure out on their own. I mean, are you primarily interested in physical things or spiritual things? And I pray that you give some thought to your spiritual life because until you do, I just don't believe you'll ever be as happy or as complete and joyful and satisfied as you could be. You know, Jesus even taught us in Mark 12:30 that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. And if we're not devoting at least some of our day to spiritual things, I just don't think it's possible to do that. You know, Jacob started wrestling with Esau in the womb, and it continued into adulthood. And all the while, he was wrestling with another person so that he could inherit blessings. But what Jacob will learn, just like all of us will, is that sinners don't wrestle against other men. They wrestle against God. Thank you.